The epical scientific achievement by Soviet Russia in beating the United States of America in the race to launch the first man-made moon has all humanity staring heavenward. For the miracle here simulated may have more profound implications than we mortals are ordinarily called on to grasp at once. When the Soviet Union put Sputnik into orbit above the Earth in 1957, panic struck the American heartland. Thousands rushed to Sears and Roebuck to purchase bomb shelter kits, and Congress responded by creating the National Aeronautical and Space Administration, NASA, and by appropriating funds for science education. Earth Angel, Earth Angel, will you be mine? But back on the Earth's surface, a booming economy helped shape a blissful retrospective view of the 1950s. A rebuilding Europe was hungry for American goods, fueling the consumer-oriented sector of the American economy. Conveniences that had been toys for the upper class, such as fancy refrigerators, range-top ovens, convertible automobiles, and televisions now became middle-class staples. The pent-up demand, though, for consumer goods unleashed after the Great Depression and World War II sustained itself through the 1950s. Homes became affordable to many apartment dwellers for the first time. Consequently, the population of the suburbs exploded. The huge youth market had a music all of its own called rock and roll, complete with parent-detested icons such as Elvis Presley. Of course, not everything was as rosy as it seemed. Beneath the pristine exterior, a small group of critics and nonconformists pointed out the flaws in a suburban America, a suburban America they believed had no soul, a government they believed was growing dangerously more powerful, and a lifestyle they believed was fundamentally repressed, and much of America was still segregated. Welcome to another edition of Print the Legend, a podcast for U.S. history students where we take a look at the stories that made up America and the stories that America made up. I'm your host, Mr. Nasosi, and in this episode of America in the 1950s, we take a look at this notion of the 1950s as the happy days. Perhaps when measured against the Great Depression of the 1930s, the World War of the 1940s, and the strife of the 1960s, and malaise of the 1970s, well, then perhaps the 1950s were indeed happy. Well, unless you were African-American, or a suspected communist. As early as 1944, Underneath the Capitol Dome in Washington, D.C., congressional hearing rooms were packed. I meant to do you no personal injury. And if I did, I beg your pardon. Let us not assassinate this lad further, Senator. You've done enough. Have you no sense of decency, sir? At long last, have you left no sense of decency? Thousands of Americans who toiled in the government, served in the army, worked in Hollywood, or wrote books, had to stand before a congressional panel and answer a very simple question. Have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? 
and Mr. Mr. Welch talks about any sense of decency, it seems that Mr. Welch is paying so deeply, he thinks it's improper for me to give the record. Senator Joseph McCarthy rose to national prominence by initiating a probe to ferret out communists holding prominent positions. During his investigations, safeguards promised by the Constitution were trampled. Why were so many held in thrall to this Wisconsin lawmaker? Why was an environment that some likened to the Salem witch trials even tolerated in America? The growing menace of communism arouses the House of Representatives Un-American Activities Committee. Among the well-informed witnesses testifying is J. Edgar Hoover, head of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Perhaps we can look to 1947 as the beginning of the second Red Scare, when President Truman had ordered background checks of every civilian in service to the government. When a young prosecuting senator from California by the name of Richard Nixon began questioning Alger Hiss, a high-ranking State Department of official of spying, it was later determined that he was indeed convicted on espionage charges, and therefore the fears of communism from the inside began to intensify. McCarthy capitalized on this national paranoia by proclaiming that communist spies were omnipresent and that he was America's only salvation. At a speech in Wheeling, West Virginia in 1950, McCarthy launched his first salvo. He proclaimed that he was aware of 205 card-carrying members of the Communist Party who worked directly for the United States Department of State. A few days later, he repeated the charges at a speech in Salt Lake City, and McCarthy soon began to attract headlines, and the Senate asked him to make a case. I think the files of what you call my staff, my director, my chief of staff, have been the sloppiest and most dangerously handled files that I have ever known of since I've been in the government. The House Committee on Un-American Activities, HUAC, targeted the Hollywood film industry. Actors, writers, and producers alike were summoned to appear before the committee and provide the names of colleagues who may have been members of the Communist Party. Those who represented the named names of suspected communists were allowed to return to business as usual, but those who refused to address the committee were cited for contempt and suspicion. Uncooperative artists were blacklisted from jobs in the entertainment industry, and years had passed until many of their reputations had been restored. Above all, several messages became crystal clear during the second Red Scare to the average American. Don't criticize the United States. Don't be different. Just conform. If a person consistently reads and advocates the views expressed in a communist publication, he may be a communist. If a person supports organizations which reflect communist teachings or organizations labeled communist by the Department of Justice, she may be a communist. Make him the cutest that I've ever seen. Outside of the nation's capital and out from under the shadow of the Red Scare, millions of Americans are making the American dream a reality. Within their reach was the chance to have a house on their own land, a car, a dog, and 2.3 kids. Please turn on your magic beam. Mr. Sandman, bring me a dream. 
Automobiles once again rolled off of the assembly lines of the big three in the 1950s, Ford, General Motors, and Chrysler. The Interstate Highway Act authorized the construction of thousands of miles of high-speed roads that made living farther from work a possibility. Families that had delayed having additional children for years no longer waited, and the nation enjoyed a post-war baby boom. But racial fears, affordable housing, and the desire to leave decaying cities were all factors that prompted many white Americans to flee to suburbia. And no individual promoted suburban growth more than William Levitt. They called it Lakewood, tomorrow's city today. It became world famous. Thousands of houses were sold before they were built. Contracted by the federal government during the war to quickly build housing for military personnel, Levitt applied the techniques of mass production to construction. In 1947, he set out to erect the largest planned living community in the United States on Long Island, New York. Levitt identified 27 different steps to build a house, and at first the homes were only available to veterans, but eventually, through its own popularity, Levitt Town was open for business for the rest of the country. But perhaps no phenomenon shaped American life in the 1950s more than television. At the end of World War II, the television was a toy for only a few thousand wealthy Americans. But in just 10 years, nearly two-thirds of the American households had a television in their living room. The biggest selling periodical of the decade was naturally TV Guide. In a nation once marked by strong regional differences, network television programming blurred these distinctions and helped forge a national popular culture. And Americans loved situation comedies, sitcoms, more than anything else. In the 1950s, I Love Lucy topped the ratings chart. They broke new ground by including a Cuban-American character, Ricky Ricardo, played by bandleader Desi Arnaz, and dealing with Lucille Ball's pregnancy, though Lucy was never filmed from the waist down while she was pregnant. 44 million Americans tuned in to welcome her newborn son to the show. Leave it to Beaver. Through shows such as Leave it to Beaver, The Donna Reed Show, and Father Knows Best, television did create an idyllic view of what the perfect family life should look like, though few actual families could live up to this ideal. Television's idea of a perfect family was a briefcase-toting professional father who left daily for work, and a pearls-wearing, nurturing housewife who raised their mischievous boys and obedient girls. America's fascination with the Wild West was nothing new, and television capitalized on that. Cowboys and lawmen such as Hopalong Cassidy, Wyatt Earp, and the Cisco Kid galloped across televisions every night. The Roy Rogers Show and Rin Tin Tin were popular on Saturday mornings, and few could run throughout a Levitt town and not see a young boy wearing a Davy Crockett coonskin cap. Happy trails! 
One Western in particular, Gunsmoke, ran for 20 years, longer than any other primetime drama in television history. Westerns reinforced the 50s notion that everything was okay in America. Like The Lone Ranger or Zorro, most programs of the early 1950s drew a clear line between the good guys and the bad guys. There was very little danger of injury or death, and the good guys always triumphed at the end. And by the late 1950s, though the genre had become more complicated and the lines between good and evil were blurred, America entered the more turbulent 60s with heroes such as the black-clad mercenary Paladin and the gambling Maverick brothers who would do anything to earn a buck. Rock and roll was everything the suburban 1950s landscape were not. While parents of the decade were listening to Frank Sinatra, Perry Como, and the big bands of the 1940s, their children were moving to a new beat. In fact, to the horror of the older generation, their children were twisting, thrusting, bumping, and grinding to the sounds of rock and roll. The roots of rock and roll lay in African-American blues and gospel. As the Great Migration brought many African Americans to the cities of the North, the sounds of rhythm and blues attracted suburban teens. Due to segregation and racist attitudes, however, none of the great artists of the genre could get much airplay on the radio. Sam Phillips, a Memphis record producer, found the answer in Elvis Presley. With a deep Southern sound, pouty lips and gyrating hips, Elvis took an old style and made it his own. You ain't nothing but a hound dog to cry all the time. You ain't nothing but a hound dog crying all the time. Well, you ain't never caught a rabbit and you ain't no friend of mine. From Memphis, Tennessee, the sound spread to other cities and demand for Elvis records skyrocketed. Within two years, Elvis was the most popular name in the entertainment industry. After the door to rock and roll acceptance was opened, African-American performers such as Chuck Berry, Fats Domino, and Little Richard began to enjoy broad success as well. White performers such as Buddy Holly and Jerry Lee Lewis also found artistic freedom and commercial success. Because rock and roll originated among the lower classes and the segregated ethnic group, many middle-class whites thought it was tasteless. Rock and roll records were banned from many radio stations and hundreds of schools. But the masses spoke louder than those naysayers, and when Elvis appeared on TV's The Ed Sullivan Show, the show's ratings soared. The commercial possibilities were limitless. Money trumped morality. As a generation of young adults finished military service, bought houses in suburbia, and longed for stability and conformity, their children seemed to take comfort for granted. 
They wanted to release the tensions that bubbled beneath the smooth surface of post-war America. Above all, they wanted to shake, rattle, and roll. I said 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 shake, rattle, and roll. Many in the 1950s strove for the comfort and conformity depicted on such TV shows as Father Knows Best. But despite the emerging affluence of the American middle class, there was a poverty, racism, and alienation in America that was rarely depicted on TV. Minorities seemed to be shut out from the emerging American dream. Poverty rates for African Americans were typically double those of their white counterparts. Segregation in public schools, the lack of a political voice, and long-standing racial prejudices stifled the economic advancement of many African Americans. In the entertainment world, dozens were able to revel in middle-class materialism, racism, and uniformity. However, other intellectuals were able to detach themselves enough from American mainstream to review it with a critical lens. The writers of the Beat Generation refused to submit to the conformity of the 1950s. Greenwich Village in New York City was the center of the Beat universe. Epitomized by such Columbia University students as Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg, the Beats lived a bohemian lifestyle. In On the Road, Kerouac's hero travels around the nation, delving into America's fast-living underside. In Howl, Allen Ginsberg assails materialism in conformity and calls for the unleashing of basic human needs and desires. The booming post-war defense industry came under fire and Seawright Mills, the power elite. Mills feared that an alliance between military leaders and munitions manufacturers held an unhealthy proportion of power that could ultimately endanger American democracy, a sentiment echoed in President Eisenhower's farewell address. The military-industrial complex, he called it. American painters also emerged in the 1950s, taking a shot at conformity. Edward Hopper, who had made a name for himself in earlier decades, combated the blissful images of television by showing an America full of loneliness and alienation. Mark Rothko and Jackson Pollock sought to express their subconscious and their dissatisfaction with post-war life through unique and innovative paintings. And while the 1950s silver screen lit up mostly with the typical Hollywood fare of westerns and romances, a handful of films shocked audiences by uncovering the dark side of America's youth. Marlon Brando played the leather-clad leader of a motorcycle gang that ransacks a small town in The Wild One. The film terrified adults, but fascinated kids who emulated Brando's style. And perhaps the most controversial and influential of these films is 1955's Rebel Without a Cause. It's not a place for kids. A minute ago, you said you didn't care if he drinks. He said a little drink. You're tearing me apart! What? You, you say one thing, he says another, and everybody changes back again! That's a fine way to behave. Another film about teenage delinquency, Rebel, is not set amid urban decay, but rather in an affluent suburb. 
The film earned three Academy Award nominations and propelled James Dean to posthumous but eternal stardom. And that concludes our look at the 1950s in America on Print the Legend, a podcast for U.S. history students where we look at the stories that made up America and the stories that America made up. Coming up next time, a two-part series on the civil rights movement in America. In the 1950s, the United States operated under an apartheid-like system of legislated white supremacy. And although the Civil War did bring an official end to slavery in the United States, it did not erase the social barriers built by that peculiar institution. And despite the efforts of radical Reconstructionists, the American South emerged from the Civil War with a system of laws that undermined the freedom of African Americans and preserved many elements of white privilege. No major successful attack was launched on the segregation system until the 1950s and 1960s. I'm Mr. Nasosi, and I thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to join me for this moment of learning. I look forward to welcoming you back to talk about the civil rights movement in two parts next time.